Well, as Travis mentioned, uh, my name is Sean McNally, and uh, I'm a friend of David Hanna's, and so hopefully you're in good hands, but I guess time will tell. Um, I pastor a faith community in the downtown Nashville area called Apostrophe, and we are a sincere faith community for skeptical people, which basically means um, we do everything that we can to engage the type of individual that wants nothing to do with church or the things of God. And so um, we do art shows and dinner parties and uh, dialogue groups. Um, We do liturgy every Tuesday night. Um, But basically, the faith community that I pastor um, seeks to do the same thing you guys are doing, which is to be um, disciples of Jesus, people who know and follow Jesus, who make disciples. And so um, I want to begin our time together this morning by telling you a little bit about myself and my upbringing and a lady named Mrs. Rose. Um, I grew up in the northern suburbs of Chicago, and uh, we grew up in like this uh, classic local a uh, small, mid-sized Presbyterian church, and being here with you kind of reminds me of it in that there's stained glass on the sides, and just the aesthetics are similar. The chandeliers are, like, literally the same. And so um, I grew up in a, a small Presbyterian church, uh, not, not unlike this one aesthetically, um, and in our local church family, there was this lady named Mrs. Rose. Um, Mrs. Rose was about 70 years old when I was 10, And so I'm much older than 10 years old, and Mrs. Rose has passed away. Um, But there are things about her that are distinct and remarkable and that are unforgettable to me. Um, She was really formative in my life. Uh, Mrs. Rose was this uh, older woman. I won't call her old, but um, in her mid-70s. And she was like the heartbeat of the church. She was at everything. Um, She was at every um, service, prayer meeting, potluck group. Uh, She was my Sunday school teacher as long as I could remember. Um, Like there was something happening in our church family. Mrs. Rose was there. Um, You could say that she was the height of piety and yet that wasn't what was impressive to me about her. And I don't think God was at all impressed by that. I don't think her religiosity is is really what mattered, though it was noteworthy. Um, The thing that I remember most about Mrs. Rose Uh, was the way that she shared her life with people and the way that um, she engaged individuals in her community and in her everyday life um, because she always had these fascinating stories to tell us. Um, Like we would be uh, sitting around having like brunch after church and Mrs. Rose would tell us a story about her week of how um, she met uh, a woman in line at the grocery store and they talked the whole time and then they were at the checkout counter together and after 30 minutes of talking to this woman she eventually told her about Jesus and it was this miraculous thing and the heavens opened and all I could think about was like gosh I would hate to be stuck in line behind you guys at the grocery store like I'm a busy 10 year old I have places to go Um, but Mrs. Rose was always sharing her life with people and always um, uh, making people feel heard and known and loved, and she asked really thoughtful questions. She got to know people's stories. Um, every year for the 4th of July, our church would do this big like picnic in the forest preserve, which is what you all call a greenway. Um, but in Chicago, we had forest preserves, and we would have a picnic, and Miss Rose would be like off talking to the police officer about his life, and this and that, and how his mom is sick. And she'd come over and be like, so we're gonna, I'm going to pray for that police officer. And I would think, like, Miss Rose, leave him alone. Like, he is working. What are you doing? Miss Rose um, had captured something that was 
very near um, to the life of Jesus and the heartbeat of the gospel, which was to engage individuals in conversation about the things of God. Um, She didn't have this weird uh, guilt or shame-oriented conversion agenda to make God happy with her and to control other people. Like There was nothing like that at all. And it shouldn't be like that for us. Instead, Mrs. Rose had deeply encountered the love of God, understood the grace that had been extended to her, and wanted to exude that in the lives of other people, both within the church family, like she's a 70-year-old woman basically running the, the church, but also she was being the church outside of the four walls to everybody that she met so that they could have an encounter with the love of God, even if it was brief or small or just a quick conversation in line at the grocery store while everybody waits and the line backs up behind her. But that's who Mrs. Rose was, and it stuck with me. And so the reason that matters is because um, if we are people who know and follow Jesus, uh, we have union with him, and we make disciples with him. There's no category in the scriptures for a follower of Christ who doesn't also make disciples in some way, shape, or form. And so if we are people who know God and are loved by God, then we have this distinct purpose to be with God and to make disciples with Jesus. And so the scripture that we're talking about today is basically um, this beautiful narrative of how Jesus engages uh, people in gospel conversations. And so it was read for us today, but I'm going to read it um, kind of section by section. And so if you're somebody who likes to read along, this is a great day for you because we're going to go basically chronologically through this text. If you're a note taker, you can get your paper out. But um, we're looking at John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. It says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although he himself did not baptize, only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So when he came to the town of Samaria, near Sechar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, weary as he was from his journey, sat beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So let's observe the scene here. Let's break it down. Um, Basically, the Pharisees, who are the religious elite of the first century, see that Jesus is um, teaching about the things of God and showing the way of the kingdom, and people are following him. And in addition to that, people are getting baptized. Notice Jesus, again, modeling this way of giving leadership away. It's his disciples who are doing the baptizing. They are integral to the disciple-making process. And the Pharisees see this, and they're skeptical, and it's noteworthy that individuals are following this Jesus guy. And so Jesus is traveling all around Israel, and in the narrative we catch him in, he is going from Judea to Galilee. And in the middle is Samaria. So Jesus is going from Judea to Galilee. Samaria is in the middle. Samaria was a very unique place. Um, Basically, if you look at um, the history of Israel for thousands and thousands of years, um, in 600 BC, the Babylonians conquered uh, Judea, and with it, the nation of Samaria, the town. Um, And the Babylonians who are these conquerors, these mighty people, these warriors, um, they took all of the high and middle class individuals back to Babylon as like the spoils of their conquest, and they left everybody who was of low class in Samaria. And so from 600 AD 
all the way into where we catch Jesus um, in the first century. Um, Samaria was this place um, of low social status, and their way of life and their worldview had kind of intermingled with all the other cultures and tribes and um, polyistic, polytheistic ways of living. And so the people of Samaria, according to the Jews of the day, were basically um, this like low class of society, this weird intermingling of people groups. And they were um, undesirable, unclean, and unworthy of social interaction. And so uh, if you were an individual in the first century and you were Jewish, you never talked to somebody from Samaria. It was like ritually unwise. It was unacceptable. Unacceptable. Like there was a social and cultural and racial and spiritual divide between uh, the Jews and the Sumerians that um, was not unlike what we see around the world today. Like they were people that didn't mix. And so this is really significant because it highlights um, how countercultural and how outrageous it would be for Jesus, a Jew, to go through Samaria. Most of the time when Jews, if they cared about their holiness at all, instead of walking through Samaria, would go the long way around from Judea to Galilee and add countless hours to their journey just to avoid Samaria. Like they literally walked all the way around it so they wouldn't have to talk to those people. And yet our scripture shows that Jesus goes right into Samaria. In fact, he sends himself to those whom uh, nobody in his culture wanted anything to do with. He goes through Samaria. And so if you're here this morning and you're a note taker, uh, this one's for you. To be part of the kingdom of God is to live a sent life for the benefit of others discovering God. Mrs. Rose sent herself to her neighbors. Jesus sent himself to Samaria. Who is God sending you to? Because to be a part of the kingdom, to follow the way of Jesus, is to live a sent life for the benefit of those around you so that they can have an encounter with the love of God. So I wonder, like, what is the East Nashville equivalent of that? If Jesus is this guy who sends himself to those who are marginalized and, like, socially undesirable, the ones that the elite wanted nothing to do with, what is the East Nashville equivalent of that? What is it like for you to cross uh, those same metaphorical cultural boundaries? Because the way of the kingdom is to do that. Does it mean drawing near to your neighbor who is a Republican and that astonishes you? Does it mean drawing near to your neighbor who's a Democrat and you find that unbelievable? Does it mean going to the lipstick lounge down the street and having a drink with someone that you might not usually? Does it mean going into Antioch, a place that some might consider a lower income place, and building relationships and serving, tutoring at schools? What is the natural equivalent of following a sent God to people who are looking for him? Do you know your literal neighbors on your right and on your left, in your home or your apartment community? Who is God sending you to so that you can be an individual whose life tells the story of his love? Because that's the way of the kingdom. Jesus draws us near and sends us out. He even sent himself. So I wonder, what does it look like for you to cross cultural borders the same way Jesus did and tell the story of God? Let's keep that question in mind as we continue looking through the scripture. 
Um, Looking at John chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, we see that a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So, in John's Gospel, um, this is chapter 4. In chapter 3, the text right before it, we see this individual named Nicodemus, who is this religious elite, one of the finest teachers of the Jews. Um, He basically sneaks out one day, goes to Jesus at night in secret, and asks Jesus, how can I be born again? We see Nicodemus, the religious elite, like the most pious and holy and righteous in the community, sneaking out at night to protect his own reputation because he wanted to know the way of Jesus. We see the guy on the highest echelon of society, Nicodemus, in John chapter 3, coming and asking him questions. And we see a gospel conversation in John 3. This text in John 4 could not be like more different than that. This is the ultimate contrast. If Nicodemus in John chapter 3 is the highest of the high, the religious elite, the Samaritan lo- woman is the lowest of the low. And here's why. So the text shows us in verses 6 and 7 that it's the sixth hour of the day, which in their timekeeping system was noon. And it's Israel, and so it is very hot, it's arid, it's a desert. Noon is not when you want to be outside, kind of like the summer in Nashville. No one goes out at noon, it's hot. And so this woman went to the well to draw out, to draw water at noon. Typically, if women were going to the well in the first century, they went in the early morning when it was cool or late at night when it was cool, and they always went in groups for safety, for security, for ease of travel, for friendship, all of that, the same reason you go places in groups. So it's very unusual that a woman would be getting water at noon and doing it by herself. It's not an accident. The text shows us later that um, she was a social outcast. And another complicating factor in this narrative is that Jesus is like a teacher and a rabbi, and typically teachers and rabbis in the first century would not have these social interactions with women in public. You might call that sexist. It was the way of the day. Rabbis and single women did not meet, especially at the well to get water. And yet... We see them there in the scene, Jesus and the woman at the well, and Jesus engages her in conversation, and he asks her for a drink. He asks her for a drink. And so this is unusual, one, because you've got the male-female dynamic in the first century, which was bizarre, but you've also got the Jew and Samaritan dynamic, these people groups that are in conflict and do not mix. And so for this Samaritan woman, this is probably the first time that a man has engaged her in conversation and wants her for something more than her body. And also, it's probably the first time a Jew has ever said something that is non-confrontational to her. Jesus says, can you give me a drink? It's probably the first time a kind Jewish man has encountered this woman. 
And so it's already a surprising encounter. And then Jesus spices it up by saying something that is outlandish and tricky for her to understand. He says, if you knew the gift of God and the one who is talking to you, you would have asked me for a drink and I would have given you living water. Basically, Jesus is saying, like, if you knew who I was, you'd be the one asking me for a drink. And also, it wouldn't be from this well. It would be something else. And the woman's response is surprising because she kind of takes him at face value, saying like, oh, the well's pretty deep. You don't have anything to draw water from. Um, are you like greater than our father Jacob, who is this Old Testament patriarch who made the well, and there's like blessing associated with it? So she's like, are you better than Jacob? Because no one's better than Jacob. So one, like, how are you going to get the water? Two, what are you doing here? This is weird. And Jesus says, everyone who drinks from this well will never will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give will never be thirsty again. And so the woman is thinking, like, does he know of another well? Is the water cooler and cleaner there? Is it like a natural spring that's going to be great? And so um, she says, give me this water. Give me this water that you have, the Samaritan woman, to this Jesus. And the interesting part about it, you might call it speculation, but I would think, like, at first glance, if you are this woman who is adulterous and has many husbands, and you have to go to the well alone due to your sexual shame because no one wants to talk to you. If you are this woman and some guy who is Jewish and kind says, I know a place where you can get water where you'll never be thirsty again, I would imagine at first thought, she says, give me this water so I can stop publicly humiliating myself every day, coming to this well at noon where everyone gets to watch me and I'm reminded over and over and over and over of my mistakes and that nobody wants to associate with me. Initially, I would think this woman hears that there is this water that is available to her so that she can just stop being an outcast and stop being shamed every day. And yet, it's not really about that. It's about something much deeper. And so if this is like a movie or a Netflix special, this part right here in the text where we're at, this is the rising action. This is where it's getting really thick. The plot is churning and churning. And so we have this rising action and the scene takes a turn. In verse 16, Jesus says to this one, like, okay, you want the water? Great, sure. Go and get your husband and tell him to come here. Verse 17 says, The woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus says, You're right in saying I have no husband because you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not even your husband. What you have said is true. And so the woman catches on that something significant is happening and she says in verse 19, I perceive that you are a prophet. It's like you're a spiritual guy. You know about me. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. For you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. 
God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. In verse 25, the woman says to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. Fascinating. Fascinating. Jesus says, go get your husband. And she says, "Uh, yeah, I don't have a husband. As if he doesn't know the depths of her heart and the narrative of her whole life. Jesus asks a question that pierces the desires and the nature of her heart in a rich and beautiful way. And her first response is self-protection. Of like, oh, a husband? I don't have one of those. She's had five of them. And the man she's with now is not even her husband. In our day, that's controversial. In the first century, it's unthinkable. And yet, the whole time in this gospel conversation, in this way where the kingdom of God is being discovered by this woman, Jesus continually is present, asking thoughtful questions, making her feel heard and known and ultimately loved. Because he's not phased by her response. He's not phased by her self-protective effort to cover her own shame, to say like, oh, I don't have a husband, so the water's just for me. He's not phased by her avoidant answering technique because she hasn't been able to trust anyone truly before because everyone wants something from her. Instead, Jesus presses further and further and further into the fact that this Samaritan woman whom the Jews want nothing to do with and even her own people, they call her an outcast, he presses deeper and deeper and deeper into the truth that she is, she, that she is seeking, a love that um, is not manipulative and a joy that is not connected uh, to everyday actions but is more intrinsically deep and that this woman is looking for peace and joy and hope. And she's been trying to find it in sex and it's obviously unfulfilling because she's on the sixth guy now. And yet Jesus is unfazed by all the things the culture says are taboo and continues to pursue her so that she can know him and know the love of God. Did you see in the scripture, it said the father is seeking those who worship in spirit and truth. God the father is pursuing this woman who no one wants anything to do with and says, you're welcome in my family. You are a daughter. Come be a part of our kingdom. Come feast at the table with us. It's a love that doesn't change regardless of what you've done. We see that this moment of gospel discovery is happening by the well in Samaria. And the woman has some background of spirituality saying like, oh yeah, I, I heard a prophet's coming and when he comes, he'll tell us everything and about the ways of God and stuff. And imagine being there and standing there and making that statement of like, yeah, we, we heard about this guy who was gonna come and show us about God and Jesus says, it's me, I'm here and I'm calling you into the family of God. I have sent myself not only from heaven to earth, not only across cultural barriers from Judea into Samaria, but literally to the well so that you would know me, 
so that the love of God will become manifest in your life. And not only that, but I'm gonna go give my life for you so that your sin and your guilt and your shame, like I'm taking all that to the cross. All these things that you think keep you from God are no more because I'm taking care of it. Come be in the family with me. Go tell about what you've heard. That's what's happening at the well in Samaria in the first century. This moment of gospel discovery that began with a question for a cup of water. Two things that are noteworthy here. The first is that Jesus is in pursuit of you in the same way, continually knocking on the door of your heart, stirring up your thoughts, questioning so that your soul realizes the things that you desire are not more desirable than Jesus. He's saying, where you're looking for joy is gonna be unsatisfying. For the woman at the well, it's sex, but we do it with a lot of things, power, money, control, aesthetic. We're just like the woman at the well, looking for joy everywhere that we're not gonna find it. And yet Jesus says, I'm here to give you living water, this beautiful metaphor of a union with God that quenches the thirst of your soul. It's what I'm looking for. It's what you're looking for. And the lack of it is what keeps us up at night. Jesus is saying, come drink living water. Discover how things were always meant to be, you and God together. Believe the gospel. Turn from ways of pretend joy that don't satisfy. Come be with me. The anchor of the gospel is that God is pursuing man and man was always made to be with God. And we see that becoming clear in this narrative of the woman at the well. It's what God has been saying all along. Come be with me. And note how the woman responds. So we see two things. One, that God is in pursuit of us, just like Jesus at the woman at the well. This offer of the life of the kingdom, of being welcomed into the family of God, it's extended to you and me. And the second thing that's significant is her response. Because she doesn't say like, oh yeah, cool, thanks. Back to my normal life now. No, she goes and she tells. And if you were to read the scripture this week, I'd hope you do, read it four or five times because there's new stuff in it every time. But read verses 25 through 39. The Samaritan woman goes back into the town and she engages all her friends and neighbors and coworkers. And when I mean friends, I mean like, you know, anyone who would talk to her. And she says, come see about this man who told me everything that I had ever done and treated me in such a way that was unlike anything I've experienced before. It's the love of God made manifest in Christ. And it is discovered through gospel conversations. So in verses 25 through 39, she goes and tells, and the scripture says, that many came to believe because of the testimony of the woman. All she did was tell her story. She told anyone who would listen what happened at the well. The same is true of us. When we think about engaging in gospel conversations, 
It's not this weird guilt-oriented thing of you better go be real nice to your neighbor. God's going to be pissed. It's not like that. When we experience the love of God in a rich and true way, because the gospel has offered us hope and joy and peace, because we have a Savior who is self-sacrificial on our behalf, he gives of his life so that we would know the joy of being with God, the way things were always supposed to be. When that awakens in your heart, it cannot help but spill out to other people in a way um, that is natural and authentic and genuine. So as a church family, we care deeply about gospel conversations because it's one of the many ways that God has been making himself known all throughout history. And in engaging your neighbor or your friend or your coworker, you're part of a larger story that is so much bigger than yourself. It is your union with God being expressed to others so that they could discover who he is. So for you, what does this matter? What do you do about this? I wonder, um, what does it look like to cross those cultural boundaries that we were talking about a few minutes ago? Do you have a neighbor who is gay or lesbian that maybe has never been invited to dinner before by a person of faith? Do you have a neighbor who's homophobic? Same thing. Would love an invitation to dinner. Is there an individual in your family or in your workspace or in your neighborhood that is a different race or ethnicity or uh, religious origin than you? What does it look like to serve them and to build a relationship with them? These gospel conversations, um, they are not necessarily something that uh, you should ever manipulate or somehow um, engineer or architect to be this like big conversion moment. Just look at the narrative of Jesus. He was present. He asked questions. He wasn't phased by things that culture thought were offensive. And he wanted the woman at the well to be heard, known, and loved. So what does it look like for you to posture yourself in the same way? Who are the people around you that are deeply searching for hope and joy and peace? And what does it look like to genuinely, genuinely make them feel heard, known, and loved? It's simple things, little things. Having a drink on your porch, going for a walk in the neighborhood, an invitation to breakfast or dinner. For myself, there was a couple on my adult co-ed soccer team having a baby, and they didn't have family in Nashville, so my wife and I threw them a baby shower. Simple, small way to make them feel known and loved. We're not heroes for doing it, but we hope that they encountered the love of God in that moment. Simple things like that are how gospel conversations begin to occur. Jesus modeled it for us in the first century, and as people who are his followers to this day, if you know and love God, then gospel conversations are an everyday rhythm of your life, and it begins by asking thoughtful questions. Because the gospel truly is for everyone. And if um, this narrative of the woman at the well doesn't indicate to us that nobody is beyond um, the hope or the reach or 
um, the depth of the love of God, like we're missing the point. We're missing the point. Because look at the contrast between Nicodemus, the religious elite, in John chapter 3. He was seeking and searching for the gospel even though he knew all the religious rules. And this woman at the well, totally adulterous in every way, shape, or form, she was doing the same thing, seeking and searching and looking for the love of God. Nicodemus was a Jew. She was a Samaritan. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, a religious elite. This woman belonged to no religious party at all. Nicodemus was a politician. This woman had no political standing whatsoever. Nicodemus was a a scholar, a genius. This woman was uneducated. Nicodemus was the height of morality. The woman was immoral. Nicodemus is named. In the scripture, this woman at the well, this beautiful narrative, we don't even get to know her name. I wish I knew her name. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night to protect his reputation so that the religious elite wouldn't know he was looking for Jesus. And this woman at the well was sought by Jesus, but she came to the well at noon, also protecting our reputation. This shows us that the gospel is truly for everyone, those who are at the highest echelons of society and the lowest of the low. And so as followers of Jesus, we engage both with equal importance. There's no distinction. And so I want to encourage you to um, go this week and have gospel conversations because I would wager that God is already at work making himself known uh, in the people that you find yourself in contact with. And I would think if you knew their story, that's step one into helping them discover the gospel and the love of God. So let's pray together and then uh, we'll sing in response to the scriptures. Uh, Jesus, we just thank you for... um, constantly uh, exceeding our expectations and challenging us in what it is to, to know God and to be loved by him. And we thank you that in this snapshot that we get from John chapter 3 and John chapter 4 uh, of the way that um, you engage individuals that um, are far from the things of God uh, and the way that you draw them near, um, would we remember that we're no different than Nicodemus, the religious elite, and we're no different than this woman at the well. Um, So would we first be um, repentantly reminded of our need for you and the fact that we are uh, often straying from your love and your goodness and seeking our own ways of joy. Uh, And so would you remind us uh, of your way, uh, of the way of life in union with you as we were always created to be? Um, Would we be honest about the ways that we run the other direction And would we be um, sincere in our desire to draw near to you and to ask for your forgiveness and your grace and mercy? Uh, Because this narrative uh, reeks of grace and mercy and you can't help but get get a whiff of your goodness in reading it. And so would you remind us of our need for you just like Nicodemus, just like the woman at the well? And would you also um, make us aware of the individuals who uh, you are already pursuing, and you are already making yourself known to our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers. Um, show us those who are seeking to discover the love of God, and show us what it is to engage in a gospel conversation so that they would genuinely feel welcomed without an agenda, feel known and heard and loved. 
um, the love that comes from you, the love that they're looking for. Because uh, the, the cry of the gospel is that um, that is readily available. And so um, would you help us be a part in helping others discover that? Uh, we love you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.